So 2 Samuel chapter 15. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever, sorry, whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to them, what town are you from? And he would answer, oh, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge of the land, then everyone who has a complaint or a case could come to me and I would see that they received justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. So he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfil a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me to Jeru- back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. So the king said to him, Go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messages throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, not knowing anything about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent to Ahithophel, the Gilonite, who was David's counsellor, to come from Gilo and his hometown. His hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever your lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him and they halted at the edge of the city. All of his men marched past him along with the Kerithites and the Pelethites and all 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. The king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why should you come along with us? You go back and stay with King Absalom. You're a foreigner and an exile from your homeland. You only came yesterday and today shall I make you wander about with us when I don't know where I'm going? Go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. David said to Ittai, Go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched with all his men and the families that were with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley 
and all the peoples moved on towards the wilderness. Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favour in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Ahimaz with you and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. And you and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. I'll just move on now to chapter 16, verses 5 to 14. As King David approached Bahurim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei of Gerah. And he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. And as he cursed, Shimei said, Get out! Get out, you murderer, you scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son, Absalom. You've come to ruin because you're a murderer. Then Abishai son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing me, because the lord said him to, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more then... This Benjaminite. Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore me to me his covenant blessing instead of this curse today. So David and his men continued along the road, while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went, throwing stones at him, showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted and there he refreshed himself. Good morning everyone. My name's Stephen, one of the ministers here. As we heard before, Chris talking about love and and justice. What about you? Are you someone who loves justice or are you someone who loves mercy? Because they don't really fit together that easily, do they? You know, open the news up and, and you'll see this played out in the real lives of people. Justice 
or mercy. Like this week, even, there's been several news stories on these kind of themes. There's speculation that Donald Trump will spend the next couple of months issuing presidential pardons with his time. So he'll let his family off and his, his um, staff off for any crimes that they might have done while he's been president. Do you like this kind of mercy? Or are you someone who feels like this is a terrible injustice? Or also in the, in the news recently... Martin Meffert was murdered 14 years ago and his murderer only admitted to it last year. And Martin's sister says to her brother's murderer, I will never forgive you. She wants justice, not mercy. And who could really blame her? But then again, also this week, the mother of a man killed by his friend in a drug-induced psychosis, she hugs her son's killer in court. And then outside court, she says later on, no one's really winning from this. She shows unbelievable mercy. Or perhaps most tortured of all, there's this really horrible story from a couple of years ago that you might have seen a little while back, where the son of a a police officer drives while drunk and he kills three kids from the same family and their cousin who are going to get an ice cream. And the dad of the the drunk driver, he says he's devastated about what's happened. He says about his son, he's got a good heart. And the mother of these kids, she says, right now, I can't hate him. And I don't want to see him. I think in my heart, I forgive him. But I want the court to be fair. Do you want justice? Or do you want mercy? They don't really fit together all that easily. It's, it's an impossible tension. We want both. We need both. And yet, we can never really bring justice and mercy together in a way that works for everyone. And we see this tension today in David's kingdom. Today, we're actually covering six chapters. We had a fairly big bit read, but we're covering even more than that. We're covering six chapters. We're going to bring to an end a story that's been going for quite some time, 1 Samuel chapter 1, which we started last year and have looked at off and on. Next week, we'll still be in 2 Samuel, but those last couple of chapters, they're not a part of the flow of the story. They kind of sit outside the story. And so today, we get to see where David's kingdom ends up. And we see that it's a kingdom that unable to bring justice and mercy together and so it's a kingdom that fails to live up to what everyone hoped it would be. Let me remind you of where we're up to in this true story. Remember a couple of weeks back we saw God promise David that he was going to use his family to take care of his people forever. God painted this picture of a dream kingdom where his people are safe and cared for by a good and a faithful shepherd king. But then the next week, we saw David fall massively. He takes another man's wife, and then he has that man killed. And then he doesn't seem to care anything about it until nine months later, he's confronted by God's prophet. And last week, we saw that David's two sons, they were far, far too much like him. We saw the horrendous crime of Amnon, the heir to the throne, and then we saw Absalom take matters into his own hands and kill him. And so this this dream of, of 
David's family caring for God's people, it seems to come to an end before it can even begin to come true. And eventually, at the end of last week, we saw David bring a fragile peace with Absalom. But today, we're going to see that it goes completely wrong. Today, we see the darkest day in David's kingdom. But as we see this day unfold... We also, say, we also see that no matter how dark things look, it's always worth following the king God chooses. No matter how dark things look, it's always worth following God's chosen king. So we pick up the story with Absalom back in Jerusalem. He's been brought back from exile. But we're left wondering whether the problems are going to stay in the past or whether they're going to come forward into the present with him. And we actually got a hint of this last week, if you remember. So in chapter 14, verse 27, this is what we saw last week. Three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. His daughter's name was Tamar. He calls his daughter after his sister. And the fact that the narrator draws our attention to this probably means that in some way, Absalom's identity is shaped by not letting go of the injustice that happened in the past to his sister. Now that, that's understandable in many ways but when you combine this with some of the other things that we see in Absalom it becomes a major problem. This is a man who's got a very high opinion of himself and for good reason. Did you hear what was said? This guy is handsome, very good looking and apparently he has super impressive hair as well. Some of you might be envying that. Now, we're told these things by the narrator because it actually makes us think of two other people from Israel's history, two other leaders, Saul and Samson, leaders from Israel's past who looked great but who led terribly. And if you get the feeling that maybe Absalom's a bit of a narcissist, well, you're probably not too far off the mark. Look again at chapter 15, verse 1. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses, and with 50 men to run ahead of him. Could you imagine this kind of pageantry? And it's probably just not, you know, not just for show. I think Absalom genuinely thinks that he is what Israel needs. He waits there by the gate for people coming into Jerusalem looking for justice, and he says, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who's got a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. And this guy, he knows how to work the crowd. You know, people go to bow down before him, but he pulls them in for a bit of a hug and a kiss. And so we read verse 6, Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Absalom thinks he can do a better job of bringing justice than David. Maybe because of David's failures to do that in the past. Maybe because of his overinflated sense of self. He's handsome, he's charming, he's full of himself, he's jaded about the past, he's clever, and he's dangerous. And we've already seen last week that he knows how to play his dad, and now he does it again. He asks his dad to let him go to Hebron, a, a kind of capital in Judah. Uh, it was where David first became king. And it's the perfect place to start a coup. But he hides his intentions, of course, and he hides it 
by giving a spiritual reason for why he wants to go there. Now, people still seem to do this, hide dodgy things behind spiritual reasons. But no doubt, Absalom thought he really was God's gift to Israel. He probably convinced himself that God would want him to do what he's doing because he was going to do a better job at bringing justice than his dad had done. And if David really was the best that God could offer up, then maybe he needed a bit of a hand too. So David says to him, go in peace. And we see Absalom go planning war. And his plan succeeds. We read in verse 13 that a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people are with Absalom. Can you believe this? Can you believe God's people? God had chosen David to be their king and and they knew it. God had delivered them from every enemy. Remember, the, the Philistines had occupied their land. They knew it was David who had delivered them. They'd made this unbreakable covenant with him to be their king. But now a promising, handsome king comes along who flatters them. They forget everything that God had done for them, everything David had done for them, and they throw their lot in with Absalom. This is so typical of human nature. When things are going well for us, we're so inclined to stop being thankful and to stop looking to God We're prone to being flattered. Sometimes it's shocking to see the way that people are so blessed by God, but the way they throw it away and chase after some other dream, something that promises happiness and security, but in the end delivers only pain and brokenness. That's what God's people are doing here. And what looks like a bright day for Absalom and a bright new day for Israel is the darkest day that David will ever face. And it's a day that's going to end in darkness for Israel as well. When David hears that Absalom has been declared king, listen to what he says in verse 14. Come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And straight away, David sees what kind of king Absalom is. He'll kill anyone who stands in his way. Whether they're old friends or family, it doesn't really matter. And so we see unfolding this pitiful picture where David is reduced to fleeing for his life once again. It's a tragic picture. And David, he sends the ark back and the two priests with their sons. And then in verse 30, but David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. What do you reckon David's weeping for? Is it the ark and everything that he'd worked to create? A nation centred on God? Is it seeing that slip between his fingers? Or does he weep for these people who who follow him faithful to the end? Ittai the Gittite was a Philistine, would you believe, who had come to follow David and David's God, and he follows him. Does he weep for those who are suffering with him? Does he weep for Israel, 
so fickle, so faithless, rushing headlong into following this new shiny king Absalom, bent on destroying themselves? Or does he weep for Absalom, his son, turned against him, wishing he was dead? Or maybe does he weep for Amnon or Tamar for the justice that he failed to deliver? Or does he weep for himself, for the evil that he embraced 15 years ago that led to this dark day? As this broken man pauses on the Mount of Olives in tears on his darkest day, weeping over Jerusalem, does he remind you of anyone? Now, decades earlier, David, he'd fled like this before. He'd fled from Saul, except back then, he suffered as the innocent. But this time he suffers as the guilty and he knows it. We see this in, in what happens when David comes across a man named Shimei from the same tribe as Saul. Shimei curses David and, and he throws rocks at them as they flee. Have a look again at verse 7. He says, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has rep- repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son, Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. This guy, he's so sure that he's right. And he's so sure that David is in the wrong, that he's brave to the the point of being stupid. He's throwing rocks and dirt at David and his his army as they leave. And Abishai, a commander of David's army and a brother of Joab, probably his brother is there with him, Joab, They want to go and teach Shimei the only lesson they seem to know how to teach, which is to cut people's heads off. But look at David's response in in chapter 16, verse 10. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zariah? For he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, if he is. Who can ask him, Why do you do this? And then we see how David is interpreting this dark day. He says to Abishai and all his officials in verse 11, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. David sees that this is from the hand of God. Now, not because God directly told Shimei to go and do this. Not because Shimei is even doing the right thing, but because part of what Shimei is saying is right. This dark day is is because David is a murderer. Shimei got it wrong about Saul. This day has got nothing to do with what David has done to Saul. It's because of what he did to Bathsheba and her husband, Uzziah. So Shimei curses David, seeing only God's judgment and David's ruin. But David sees something else. He says in verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. Even on his darkest day, even though he knows he's guilty, David sees that God is the kind of God who blesses when we don't deserve it. That's grace. And he sees that he's the kind of God who saves us from ruin when we do deserve it. That's mercy. David, 
He's a man who knows the character of God. And so he bears this suffering for his own guilt with tears, but also with confidence, confidence in God's character. And again, as this broken man on his darkest day bears on his shoulders the punishment for guilt, as he surrenders himself into the hands of God, as he holds his tongue in the face of cursing, does he remind you of anyone? They barely make it out of Jerusalem. They're, they're literally just over the summit of the hill when Absalom and his armies arrive in Jerusalem. And as David left, he'd heard that his old advisor, Ahithophel, had turned against him and was now advising Absalom. And so he prays that God would turn his advice to foolishness or otherwise all is lost. And then God answers David's prayer by sending another advisor, an old friend of his, called Hushai. And at great risk to himself, Hushai stays in the city like David asks him to, and he pretends to change loyalty to Absalom. Now, we didn't read all this out, but the first thing that Ahithophel tells Absalom to do is, is to sleep with his father's concubines that have stayed in Jerusalem. Now, like a lot of political moves, it's pure evil but it's also pure brilliance. You know, in their violent, oppressive kind of world, a conquering king would, would take the wives of the defeated king. And by Absalom doing this in public, it has the effect of massively elevating the stakes. There was no going back for anybody after this. Any hope that Absalom and David could be reconciled was completely lost. If you were for Absalom now, your fate was completely sealed. That's what this move was about. This is human free will at work. This reveals the, the true heart of Absalom. You know, the one whose, whose life had been tainted by the abuse that was done to his sister. The one who longed to bring justice to the land. The one who rejected God's chosen king because he could do a better job than him. Here we see that his cause was so right in his own eyes that he was willing to triumph at all costs. And he couldn't even see the dark places he was going and taking others with him. Now, how, how often do we see that in our world? How often do people think they're more moral than God? They're better off without him or without Jesus. More capable of, of running their lives without religion. And yet, they don't see the dark places that they go or where they take others. This is human free will at work. Absalom is not being forced to do anything he doesn't want to do here. But we also know from the story, don't we, that this is God at work. Do you remember that? God had said to David in 2 Samuel 12, after David had sinned terribly, he said to him, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. We struggle to understand how God can bring justice through human behavior and yet not be guilty of forcing these evil actions. But we need to remember at this point, we're not God. We can't comprehend what he can comprehend 
See, unlike us, God can work through the free, evil choices of humanity while not himself being tainted by sin. Now, in one sense, he simply gives us what we want. We reject him and push him away. And so he withdraws his hand, which has been holding back disaster, holding back our sin. He stops saving us from ourselves and he allows the things we think we want to come our way. But notice, Absalom's not a robot here programmed by God. Absalom is doing what he wants to do. And God stops blocking his path for reasons that we just can't fully understand. What happens next is that Ahithophel advises Absalom to quickly go after David and to kill him, but to spare the people. Now again, it's one of those political moves that's pure evil, but pure brilliance. Hit him while he's weak, but show restraint, spare the people, and you'll likely win them over to you. But Hushai, David's loyal friend, he tells Absalom to wait because it'd be humiliating if Absalom rushes out and he fails to even find David and then ends up losing the first battle. It wouldn't be good for his image, which matters a lot to Absalom. And then he puts forward this plan that's going to involve a whole lot more bloodshed of of Absalom's friends and, and family. And Absalom the just, he says, yeah, let's go with that one. And before we saw God use Absalom's evil to punish, here we, sh- we see God using Absalom's evil to save. You see, God either works with fallen humanity or he doesn't work with us at all. He either uses our evil for good or he abandons us entirely. If we demand that he doesn't work through our evil, we're effectively saying to God, give up on us, judge us, destroy us. But thankfully, God's not simplistic like that. Thankfully, God's not faithless like that. He can walk with us in our evil, work through our evil even, while not being tainted by it himself. And so through Hushai's kindness, through Absalom's evil, God saves David's life. Now, what happens next in the narrative is quite short, but it probably happens over a little while. Absalom, he, he does what Hushai said, he, he gathers all Israel to him to fight David's men and he goes after David and David, he, he gets his men together and he divides them into three companies and just before he sends them out, he says to them in chapter 18 verse 5, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake and all the troops heard the king. What do you think about this? I find it irritating. Because I think, no, kill Absalom, because otherwise your kingdom's forever going to be a mess. But then I think about this as a father, and I think, no, you're right, David. Even after everything that he's done, you still love him. But then I go around in circles, and I think, but no, he deserves to die. Think about what he's done. And then I think, but after everything that he's been through in his life, what happened to his sister? He's lost his three sons, which we don't hear much about. It's no wonder his life is so messed up. 
It's an impossible mess where it's hard to imagine how justice and mercy can ever come together. And what we see unfold is that they just can't come together. What we see is that David wanted love to triumph over justice at all costs, but he just couldn't deliver. Setting the scene for the final showdown. So the fighting, it ends up back across the Jordan. And it ends up in a, in a forest. And Israel has got the numbers. There's massive numbers of Israelites against David's men. But they're losing big time under these conditions. Falling off cliffs into pits. Getting cornered by the vegetation. And eventually even Absalom, fleeing from David's men, he gets stuck in a tree. He was fleeing along on a donkey That beautiful hair of his gets caught in the branches of an oak tree and he's left dangling in the air. And so Joab, being Joab, if you remember what he's like, he kills him despite what David had said. And we see the moment when David hears about the result. First he hears about the victory. Then he hears about Absalom's death. And look at his reaction in 18 verse 33. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And again, I, I find it hard to know how to feel. On the one hand, I think, how can David mourn for this evil man? But then I think, how can he not mourn for his son? And Joab is livid. He says to David in verse 5, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life. In verse 6, he says, You've made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Who's right here? David or Joab? David grieving for his son despite all that he'd done. Or Joab who sees that David grieving is is humiliating his people and the sacrifices that they'd made for him. Is David soft, sentimental, weak? Or is his love beautiful, merciful and unconditional? What's better, justice or mercy? Mercy. I don't think that we're supposed to see that one is right and one is wrong. The desire for justice is right. And the love for a child, even a fallen child, is right. What we're supposed to see is that these two impossible things, they can't be brought together, at least not in David's kingdom. David, he wanted love to triumph over justice. But there was no way that that could work. No way that he could make it work. He's unable to offer mercy while at the same time holding his kingdom together. But he's unable to offer justice while at the same time celebrating the victory that's won. Did you see that he wishes that he could die in the place of the guilty? But even if he did, that wouldn't accomplish anything. In David's grief we see a similar grief that haunts all humanity. Nothing David or his kingdom 
or any kingdom can do can bring mercy and justice together. And it's at this sad point that we've basically reached the end of 2 Samuel. David limps back to Jerusalem as king over an unstable kingdom. It's been an epic journey, but sadly, we don't finish the book with the glorious, promising kingdom that we'd hoped for. And we see clearly that David is not the glorious, promising king that we once hoped he would be. But nonetheless, still somehow God's promise remains. And this is our final point. David leaves us with the promise of a beautiful ideal, but an unstable reality. And that is actually the entire point of 1 and 2 Samuel. 1 and 2 Samuel is all about the promise of a world ruled by a beautiful king. But it's also about the fact that while ever that promise is even the tiniest bit dependent on fallen humans, then it's only ever going to be a dream. It's only ever going to be a dream that slips into a nightmare. But even still in 1 and 2 Samuel and in David, we catch glimpses of a dream of someone else to come. As this broken man pauses on the Mount of Olives in tears on his darkest day. As he bears on on his shoulders the punishment for guilt. As he surrenders himself into the hands of God. As he holds his tongue in the face of cursing. As his heart goes out to the one who seeks to kill him. As his desire would be to die in the place of his son gone bad. If only that would allow love to triumph. Does he remind you of someone? David, he shows us that the promise comes true in Jesus. Because Jesus does what David could never do. He brings God's mercy and God's justice together perfectly. Jesus is a a king who is both willing and able to say, I will die in the place of those who are mine. I own them and I now own their sin. Can you see the power of that? Someone of infinite worth, of absolute innocence. Jesus alone can say, I own them and I now own their sin. And so Jesus alone can bring together God's justice and God's mercy for those who belong to him. I hope, as we've been looking across 1 and 2 Samuel over these last couple of years off and on, that you've felt the longing that's there for a king like Jesus. Have you felt it? A king promised and chosen by God. A king who won't lose the rebellious child. A king who suffers not for his own sin, but for the sin of his people. A king who can forgive and not destroy his kingdom. A king who can bring safety and justice to his people in a way that it will never be destroyed. A king who can allow love to triumph. No matter how dark things look in our world and no matter how dark things look in your life right now, follow this king. There's no one else worth following. 
Have you been searching for a king like this? Maybe without even realizing that that's what you're searching for. If you have, come and talk to me today and I'll help you see how it is that you can know him as your king and follow him. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful to you that you have given us Jesus, the good shepherd king that we need of infinite worth, of absolute innocence, that he alone as our king is able to bring justice and mercy together, to create a world of pure security and goodness that we can be a part of. Father, help us to see that this is the king that we've been searching for, the king that we need. Help us to follow him. And we pray in his name. Amen. If you're in year 7 to 9 and would like to head out to the um, Trinity Youth, you can do that now. Head out the doors into the building to the left and your leaders will meet you out there. The way Jesus brings justice and mercy together is awful, really. It's at the cross. He really is a man of sorrows, bearing our sin so that he could pour out his love over us bringing justice and mercy together perfectly for our salvation. Let's stand and sing Man of Sorrows.